Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is He who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I thought she was going to be the love of my life. In fact, I was prepared take the next step to have the conversation. I I was ready to make her my wife. It's my senior year of college. I was then going to be off to seminary, and I knew we needed to make a decision here. So we found our way. After the summer was over, I had spent the summer in Knoxville, Tennessee. She had spent it a summer at the beach working with Campus Crusade for Christ, and we reunited again in Knoxville, ironically enough, at a pond in the shape of a heart. (laughs) As we made our way around that pond, I could tell this conversation was not going the way I wanted it to. And then she used the line. You know the line. I just don't love you like I used to. Wow, right? Right? I mean, that's, that's heavy. That's heavy. It was heavy for me. It was one of those moments where you think, my goodness, all that I thought just seems to have gone down a heart-shaped drain, Right? Of course, good news, it all ended far better, okay? All right, this is the one that, the one that I got. Wow, I, I married way over my head. The good news is she's not in here. She's in the nursery, all right, because that would have gotten me in big trouble. All right, I'll just tell you right now, that would have gotten me in big trouble. We can kind of identify with that. My guess is all of us have some kind of story that may have some similarity to that. And in fact, and in all seriousness, some may have even a more serious form of this. I mean, some of you, some in this room perhaps, have even heard something like that later in life in a much more serious reality with much greater consequences. Hear those words. 
just don't love you like I used to. It's profound. It's heartbreaking. Life-changing. You know what I think we deal with, church? I think sometimes we deal with something. I don't know that we'd admit it, especially when we're all sitting pretty here on Sunday morning and, and how are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing fine, better than I deserve, right? That's what you have to say on Sundays. But my guess is a lot of us are not necessarily doing that well, okay? So when we're here, we undoubtedly would give some strong affirmation that God loves us, but perhaps does it not lurk somewhere in the recesses of the heart and mind Could God one day use that line with me? Oh, oh, I know know what that preacher says, and I know even what the Bible says, and I know I'm supposed to trust God's love for me, and I I know, yes, God's love's eternal, and it's great, and and it never fails, and, and and I know, yes, that is the nature of God's love, but somewhere deep inside, maybe through real dark moments of life, we may entertain the question, is it possible I could do something so severe? Is it possible I could go to such an extreme that someday God would whisper in my ear, I just don't love you anymore? That'd be tough, right? Really, in all honesty, I think sometimes we deal with that, and so Paul rushes to our rescue in Romans 8, 31 through 39. I mean, really, 31 through 30. One of the great texts in, in all of the Bible about the unfailing, absolutely certain, unending, unbreakable, unshakable love of God for His own. It's a profound way to end what has been a majestic, sometimes mysterious, sometimes confusing, exposition of the gospel. These eight chapters of Romans stand as the longest, clearest, most in-depth discussion of what does it mean to be made right with God. And so, so there has been a, a lot that we have weeded through, and, and, and even toward the end where we then talked about this divine plan of God from foreknowledge through glorification and wrestling then with the hard subjects of predestination, election, and then the hard subject of suffering and yet God still loves me. And so to bring all of that to its glorious conclusion, Paul draws our attention to to what should, I hope and pray, be an encouraging word from God for us. And that, that is... To conclude this exposition of the gospel, Paul affirms for the folks in Rome the unfailing love of God. I have good news for you today, church. In spite of the times in your life where you have royally messed up, and you have undoubtedly asked yourself the question, was that the last straw, so to speak? Is that it? I've got good news. Those who are blood-bought, gospel-transformed sons and daughters of the living God cannot ever, ever, ever lose it. God's grace, God's love is eternally bestowed upon you. And nowhere is that made any clearer than Romans 8, 31 
through 39. And really what we have here, Paul offers in a a really convincing kind of fashion four arguments, four defenses, so to speak, uh, of this unfailing, unbreakable love of God by, by demonstrating to us how God's love overcomes any possible challenge to our salvation. Last week we looked at one, and that is God's love overcomes that which may would try to oppose us. Paul speaks rather generally, but he does so in verse 31. What should we say to these things? And if you were with us last week, we defined what he meant by these things, and I think it's going back all the way to chapter 1 and verse 18. It's a question that indicates he's summing everything up. And so, in light of all that he said about the gospel, I mean, it is fitting, then he offers a question that's really a comment, if God is for us, or since God is for us, who can be against us? What possible earthly or other earthly power, what possible thing out there could ever come against us if God is for us? And then Paul went on to describe that then in verse 32, using this greater to lesser argument, he who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? In other words, if God did A, and B is a lesser thing than A, then surely He did A, He's going to do B. I know you didn't come here for philosophy. All right, but that, that's kind of what it is. If, if, that, if, if, God, if God gave His one and only Son, what greater act could be out there? If He's willing to do that, then He's willing to do everything else for the sake of His sons and daughters, to give us all things, all that we need for life and godliness, to give us all that we would need, even in the face of what may be persecution, opposition. Notice what Paul is saying here. He's not saying that there wouldn't be those people or things that wouldn't try to oppose us. It's, it's, not, it's not saying, well, you're now free from any opposition. No one's ever going to try and come against you. Man, it'd be great if that were true, Right? It'd be great if no one and nothing ever came against us. But is that true? No. Because there are some ones and some things that are, have, will come against us. So, he's, he's giving us this, this initial statement. The reason why we can be certain of God's love. God's love will overcome that which opposes us. Number two. This is new, so if you want to fill in the little blank in your outline, you can. God's love overcomes that which tries to accuse us. Now, now put, put your mind like in a courtroom setting. That's what Romans really feels like, at least the first eight chapters. It, it is very judicial. It's very legal. Language of justified and language of sin, debt forgiven, transgression. And, and so think of yourself in that kind of a setting and, and, and imagine you're the one on trial. Now, verse 31 and 32 has said, nothing can come against us, Right? But what if there's that dramatic moment, like what you may see on a TV courtroom drama or a movie, right? What inevitably happens, I don't know if this happens in real life, but what always happens on the TV show? Somebody at the end bursts into the courtroom, right? And has last-minute evidence. Somebody is, is prepared to bring new information before the court. Could that happen? 
Could, could we be there before God hypothetically? And could someone introduce, could there be somebody out there who would have enough standing in the court that they could just burst in and before God introduce new information? So Paul asked this question, verse 33. Who shall bring a charge? And again, it's rhetorical, so he's making a point. It answers itself, and the language of charge is accusation. We even use that term today, right? Somebody stands before a judge, and a judge will list the charges against you. That, so this is the same kind of thing. So who, who, then, who then has such standing before God that they can bring a charge? Now, notice the way the question's worded, and I love the way the question's worded. Who shall bring a charge against who? God's elect. I mean, it's, it's, almost, it's almost like Paul's saying it in a ridiculous tone of voice. Now, maybe I hear that because I tend to hear things a little snarkier than other people, all right? It's kind of my tendency, positively or negatively, all right? It is. So, but I, when, I, when I read this, I think, yeah, he's really making a, a point. In fact, I think he is, in his mind, arguing with someone. I think he does that often in Romans, by the way. Whenever he brings up challenges to his positions on the gospel, they're, they're not randomly, hypothetically thought up. I think they're all actual conversations. And I think Paul has run up against those who would challenge the unfailing love of God for his people. Who's going to bring a charge? Charge against who? Against God's elect. The one, the one true God of the universe. The almighty, all-powerful, sovereign God. The one who, before the foundation of time, elected his own. Now, if you're worried about that phrase, you're going to have to go back two weeks and listen to the sermon, all right? Because I, I've dealt with the issues of election, predestination, foreknowledge, uh, and uh, quite frankly, the topic will come up again in chapter 9, so you can just hold on for that. But it, it's, it's a profound way to, to ask the question. God's already made a decision. Who's going to bring a charge? You know how I liken this in my mind? I liken this to my attempts, especially as a child, to change my father's mind. Now, those of you who are newer, newish, or even maybe this is your first time with us. So, my, my father retired a full colonel in the Air Force. Uh, my father um, also had a doctorate from the University of Tennessee. Uh, my dad looms large in my life. Uh, if I could be half the man my father is, okay, I would, will be a success. And, and my dad was a very loving, compassionate man. But my dad also could very clearly make up his mind. It's kind of what dads do, right? Okay? And me, this may shock you, but sometimes I thought I knew better. I know, shock, I know. I know you think, you look like such a submissive child. You must have been. No, okay? I wasn't. And I, you know, I liken this then to, the, to my often failed attempts to change my father's mind. And what is usually the, the way things flow? So when I first challenge what my dad may have said, you know, he gives a directive or, or, or says, here's what we're going to do. And I say, but dad, all right, he may be patient the first time, right? 
I think in my mind of being in the car. My dad, I ask a question, what can we do such and such? And he says, no. But dad, right? But dad, can't we? And I offer my then, uh, my rebuttal argument to my father. And if he says, no, we cannot. If there is an attempt on my part to offer a third round of debate... Dad, you know what happened. The wild arm, right? The wild, the wild arm. My dad had one. It was long, all right? And, and what, are the ki- you know, what are the kids doing? Dads, we don't do, you know, we are driving minivans. It's harder to do in a minivan, all right? Okay? It's a lot easier to do in a 1980 Pontiac Bonneville, okay? You can't, I mean, he can get back. And so the third round was like, this is a silly debate. I'm not going to have it. I'm the dad, you're the kid, it doesn't matter what you think. That, by the way, would be great parenting philosophy for all of us. All right, dad, okay, kid, doesn't really matter, all right, what their point of view may be. Okay, this this is kind of how I imagine this. Who's who's going to bring a charge against God's elect? God has made a decision. In fact, it goes on to say then in that verse, it answers it simply, it's God who justifies. It's God who justifies. Who's going to successfully lobby God against you? Who could possibly have such standing with the court that they could burst through the doors of heaven and they could possibly argue before God that His original verdict needs to be overturned? Who brings an appeal of something that's already been decided by God, who could bring a charge? The answer is no one. Why is it no one? Because God justifies. Now, stick with that. Notice the language there. Boy, it's always important in Paul. In particular, it seems like, to pick up on the grammar. More often than not, in Romans, how does Paul talk about justification? He talks about it in the past tense. We have been justified. A clear, settled reality. To be justified is declared right with God. But notice what he says here. Now, this is in the present tense. It is God who justifies. It is God who justifies. So, what does that mean? I think Paul's giving a bit of nuance here. One, there could very well be those who would want to burst through the gates of heaven and make an accusation against God's elect. But what Paul means then, I think in this little change of tense, is just enough to be able to say, but it doesn't matter if they bring a charge. One, you're bringing a charge against God's elect. Two, God is the one who continues to bring His declaration of justification to bear on your life. So every accusation brought against you, God says, justified justified, justified. God is the judge. God is the jury. God is the one who issues the sentence. And what has God done for you, child of God? He has said, by virtue of who you are in Christ, you are not guilty. That is a done deal. And no one and nothing will ever change it. Who's going who's gonna to do this? Who's going to bring an accusation? No one can. No one can accuse us. God's love is certain and guaranteed. All right, let me give you number three. God's love overcomes that which tries then to condemn us. That which tries 
those, that which tries to condemn us. Now, we've, we've already noted, all right, there's nobody on earth who has such standing with God that they can burst in and bring new evidence. Right? It's, it's, not, it's not like they're going to be able to come in and say, well, did, God, you may not realize. I know you're saying He's innocent and you know, all that good stuff, and that's great. But do you know what He did last night? <laughs> I don't think you know what He did last night. Okay, so that's, that's, whew, that's good news, right? It's good news that's not happening in heaven by anyone on earth. There's a little intimidating concept that you find in the book of Revelation that says, there is one who is an accuser who night and day is accusing the brethren before God the Father. Now, understand, it's not like Satan is necessarily bringing up your name you know, every day before God, but the Bible does describe him as this. The Bible describes him as the accuser, the one who would try and bring before God. Now, why God allows this, we just chalk that up to God's sovereignty. But we know, even from a book like Job, Satan has access into the presence of God and is at least given a voice. He speaks. In Job's case, it's a little different, but in Job's case... You know, Satan says, look, God, the only reason he follows you and serves you and loves you is because you've blessed him. Take it away and he'll curse you. This is what Satan does. Brings accusation. He is an accuser of the brethren. Do you know what the bad news is? See, the Bible says that Satan is a liar. But when it says that, do you know who Satan lies to? You. Would he lie to God? No. I mean, not really. I mean, what good would that be, right? In other words, the bad news is, not only is there an accuser, but my guess is, Satan could come up with a pretty good list that's pretty accurate about all of us, right? Or am I in a church where everybody seems to have the sanctification thing figured out? Yeah. So... This is a legit question. Because when I read the question, all right, who could, who could condemn us? Well, all right, yeah, who could accuse us? God justifies, but yet we do know there is an accuser before the brethren, uh, before God, and accusing the brethren day and night, doing it day and night, and then we know the charge is brought against us. Probably right. It's probably accurate. Don't you love the question? Again, it's a question that is designed to answer itself. Who can condemn us? And the answer is no one, all right? So in other words, it's not like he won't try. What Paul means by this is it cannot, will not, it's impossible for it to be successful. Even the fact that Satan may be right in what he is accusing you of. Why is that the case? Because then Paul gives us the fourfold ministry of Christ. Fourfold ministry of Christ, which is profound because who does have standing in God's court? The Son of God has standing in God's court. 
And so notice what he says in verse 34. It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Do you see the four? It's Christ who died. It's crucifixion. The next phrase, furthermore is also risen, is resurrection. Who is even at the right hand of God. His ascension, who also makes intercession for us, his intercession, it all ends in shun, all right? I mean, even that's great, right? That, you, know, you all don't care as much for that kind of alliteration, but it feels good in this mind, all right, when all those endings are good, all right? Either the first word needs to be the same, or the ending needs to be the same, and it is. Because of Christ's crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, and intercession, what does that mean? That means that Christ has done all that is necessary in order to relieve you of the debt you should pay. And that Christ has also done all that is necessary to break the power of death itself. And that Christ Himself has transcended the boundaries of even this earth to the degree that He now stands there at the right hand of God, the place of power, the place of authority, the place of glory, the place of prestige. And what is he doing as he's standing there? As Satan is the accuser of the brethren, going before the Father day and night, what is the Son of God doing? What is our defense attorney doing? He's doing nothing but showing him the scars in his hands and the scars in his feet. He is telling the Father, it's been paid for. No matter what he says about you. No matter what he says about you. Here's the best news. That includes stuff you haven't even done yet. Is that not mind-blowing? Oh yeah, we get it in the stuff that, you know, is past. Maybe even something may be going on right now. But that counts for sins yet to be committed. Now that again is the context. It's the context of all of this. Why is it that our salvation is certain? Because our salvation was bought and paid for before we were even a thing. And that salvation bought and paid for us and paid for our sin, all of which were in the future before any of them had even happened. The reason why this is certain is because your standing before God is based on His goodness and not yours. It's based on His grace and not your works. It is based on His love and not your fidelity. Your standing before God is based on the fact there was one, Jesus Christ, who did all that was necessary so that you can now go before the Father and you can, as Hebrew says, come boldly before the throne of grace. This is great news of God's Word. This is great encouragement from God's Word. Nothing can separate you, church. Nothing can remove what is God's stamp upon you. It is a done deal. And it is certain. Who can oppose us? No one. Who can accuse us? No one. Who can condemn us? No one. So just let that rest on your heart. Now, don't misunderstand this. I'm not saying that you should just treat your sin flippantly. No, make sure that as there is sin in your life, you look at it through the lens of the cross. 
the beaten, bloodied, broken body of Christ. That's what God thinks about your sin. So don't miss that. Yet at the same time, that's also what God's love is willing to do for you. It's a profound message. Because I'm pretty certain all of us in this room at one time or another have done some deeply regrettable things. Post-salvation even. It's going to get a little tense here for a minute. All right, you ready? Do we need... Deep breath. Don't worry, we're not going to get to the last point. We'll do that next week. All right, so, so let's just, whew, all right, let's, we can shake it out. And li- so, it's, a, it's, about, it's about to get a little tense. Because post-salvation, my guess is all of us, something that we look back on, and we might even say it like this, How? How could a saved person think that way or do that thing? What was I was I even a believer? Am I even a believer now? Struggle with eternal security is a real one. And and, and I, I, I will state this as, as clearly as I know how already done it once, but we'll do it again without a shadow of a doubt. I'm absolutely certain that those God saves, He saves forever. Those God saves, He saves forever. If you this morning can in full confidence and faith declare that yes, you were born dead in your trespasses and sin, And yes, only Jesus Christ, crucified and resurrected, can save me, can cleanse my sin. Only His death and resurrection is sufficient for making me right with God. If you can say, and by faith I trust Christ, and Christ alone to intercede on my behalf before God. Listen, confident, if that is your statement of faith. Do I know your heart? No, I don't. I mean, so this is, this is you wrestling with the Spirit. But if that is the case, you are a child of the Almighty God who can still do some really dumb things, right? You can. You can. You still live in the, you still deal with this flesh We still deal with flesh. We still have a part of us that still loves the darkness, still loves our sin. If we didn't love sin, we'd never do it, right? Sin weren't attractive, no one would ever do it. Sin makes itself attractive, and we we can indulge in whatever kind it may be. The good news is, the work of the gospel is centered on the work of Christ and not yours. It's God's grace, God's sovereign grace. Does He foreknew, He predestined. Those whom He predestined, He called. Those He called, He justified. Those He justified, He glorified. This is God's certain work. So take take rest in this child of God. That God's love for you is unfailing. Even when your love for Him seems to 
fail. His is unfailing. Now you may ask, well, Pastor, I still, I don't know what to do though. I mean, there is, there is still this guilt from my past. I understand that. Quite frankly, I don't have an easy solution for you. The gospel does not mean you will now be free from regret. Now that would be awesome, right? That, whoo, that would be something. That would be something. If I could go up to somebody in the street and say, I can promise you, you'll never regret anything ever again. Now that, I, my, I'm pretty sure the numbers would swell. All right, so, but that's not the gospel, okay? That is not the gospel. No, you, you may still struggle with it. And quite frankly, I'm not, I'm not so certain that's not part of God's plan. Because you and I need to always be mindful of how desperate our need is for a Savior. And I think the longer we're saved, the longer we need to be, the more we might need to be reminded of that. There's not a person in this room for whom hell would burn any less hot than for the worst sinner you've ever heard of. There's not levels of it. You're either in God's presence or not. So I, I know some may struggle, but know, know that even in the guilt the regret of what has been previous sin. Note that even in your worst day as a believer, it was never bad enough to separate you from God's love because God's love is a forever unfailing love. Now, this morning, as, as we have a time to respond, and, and we, we're going we're gonna to sing, we're going to sing to our great God. It, it, is, it is a great song of surrender to our God, of yielding to Him everything because He's done everything for us. Perhaps there is some of that lingering regret in you and that's, that's the way you'd respond to the Lord. As we have a time of response, maybe you'd like to come here and pray. You can do that. This area up here would be open for that. If you'd like me to pray with you, I would love to do that as well. Maybe for some of you, though, there's still lingering doubt about what it means to be a believer, to know that you trusted in the gospel. I'd love to talk with you about that. I'll be down front. We can do it now. After the service, I'd love a chance to do that as well. Again, this is the good news of the gospel. He who began a good work in you will bring it forward to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, next Sunday, you'll, you'll want to make sure, in two weeks, uh, make sure that you come back. We'll finish up this and, and, and get, get to, I, I mean, really deep, profound, and then undeniable teaching uh, about this, the eternal security of the believer. For now, let's just, let's just rest in what is the grace of God and His goodness toward us. How, how, how would then you respond to how the Spirit will bring the Word to bear on your life this morning? Let's stand together and I'll pray. And after I pray, the time will be open to you as we sing back to our Lord about His goodness and greatness. Father God, we do thank You again for gathering us. We thank You that we gather together under the unfailing love You have given to us in Christ Jesus. We thank You there is no opposition, there is no accusation, there is no condemnation. We thank You that we have a Savior, not only crucified and resurrected and ascended, but who stands at Your right hand and intercedes for us. And we thank You, God, that since our salvation is not of our, not of our making, it is not for us to lose either. 
So God, I pray you take your word, encourage our hearts. May may it do what you designed for it to do by your spirit. and, And that the proper encouragement, exhortation would come to bear. That we might then be brought into even greater Christ-likeness. And that you would be glorified in it all. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.